online and hear about Genesis 15 as it relates to geocaching. Is anybody, who knew of geocaching before last week? We had a special speaker, Josh Johnson, came in, talked about geocaching. It's, it's, I've never heard of it before, but we may start some outreaches around geocaching. Uh, so if you want to be part of that, let me know. Hey, we are in a series, and this is a year-long series that started at the beginning of September. And we are using a tool called the Wayfinding Bible. I encourage you to grab one and bring it to church. If you cannot afford one, go to the desk out in the lobby, and we would love, we would love to give you one. But we are spending a year looking at the whole story of God, Genesis 1 to Revelation, the end of Revelation. And we're just at the beginning of it. We're in Genesis 17, and what we've seen so far where we've been so far is Genesis 1 and 2, where we saw there is this loving God. You could even say there's a loving ruler. And he creates his creation to be in relationship with him, to care for the garden, and everything is really good. God is ruling, things are right. Then we got to Genesis 3, and it starts to fall apart. And we saw at the core fall of Genesis 3 is unbelief. And we're going to see that again today, that that. that, that that idea is going to come up again. So we, we see God, God is a loving ruler, things are good, and then man, in unbelief, chooses to rule himself and things fall apart. And that's the narrative, if we're really honest, as we gather together, that's the narrative that we see time and time and time again in our lives when we think about how it relates to the story. So last week was Genesis 15, and it was the idea of God calls Abraham, calls this guy, says, you are now my man. You are going to start my rescue operation. I'm not done with creation. You're going to start my rescue operation, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. And the promise was, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you children. Sort of need to know that as we head into today. For those of you, for a lot of us who grew up in church, you've heard the name Abraham. So when I say Abraham, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Yell it out. Isaac, what else? Patriarch, father of many nations. What, what's that? Yep, Sarah, man of faith. You, the list could go on and on. Like we know, I, I've mentioned to you before, these Old Testament stories, my mind goes right to a flannel board and my Sunday school teacher, like I, I remember what Sarah looks like. I was there, I saw it on the flannel board, Right? For those of you that grew up in church, you have some of these things in mind, but we don't totally know what's going on here. Genesis 17 and 18, um, it's about God's will. It's about God's promises. It's about struggling with belief and unbelief as to whether this God who makes promises is actually going to follow through on his promises. Chapter 16, which we're not going to cover, but let me just give you a little context. Chapter 15, God calls Abraham and Sarah and says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing. And uh, he promises them land and children. They're getting up in age. Doesn't look like they're going to have kids. So they take it into their own hands, which was common in that day. And Abraham sleeps with one of the servants, Ishmael, and she ha- or Hagar, she has a son named Ishmael. So they've, they've battled with this belief and unbelief. They've taken it into their own hands. And now we come to Genesis 17 and 18. And uh, one of the things that we're going to do this year is we're going to read some really big passages of Scripture when possible. So we're going to read all of chapter 17. going to make some commentary as usual. And then we'll go into chapter 18 as well. Let me pray. God, as we read your word, I pray that you would speak. I pray that um, we would hear and that you would do the good work that you do through your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Genesis 17, starting in verse 1, it will be on the screen if you have your Bible. Read it there. When Abraham was 99 years old, 
The Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. We don't see that name for God very often, but it really means the God who keeps his promises. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful term for God. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you. And that's the Genesis 15, that agreement. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing. That's what a covenant simply means. It's just an agreement between God and God's people. By which I will guarantee you countless descendants. Try and put yourself in the story. Abraham is 99. Those are not the most ripe, childbearing years. And God is still saying you will have descendants. At this time, Abraham fell down on his face. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham. For you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and many kings will be among them. You know the power of a name. When somebody calls you a derogatory name when you were growing up, you understand the significance of what that does inside of you. Now this is the other side. It carries the same weight. God renaming him for a specific purpose. He's going to do the same thing with Sarah. Names have significance. Abraham goes from exalted father to now father of a multitude. I am going to keep my promises, essentially God is saying in the renaming. Verse 7. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. If you have a Bible, underline that. There, 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 there's a truth in the Abrahamic covenant that it's not ended. This is an everlasting covenant. It still carries weight today. It somehow has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and is moving through what Jesus Christ has done. And so here's the everlasting covenant. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. That same wording we see in 2 Corinthians and we see in Hebrews. This promise is still bearing fruit. It's still happening. There's this generational reality to the faith that is so important. Verse 8. And I will give the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. Verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant. Listen to this. That you and your descendants much must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. This is going to be the first time in a public setting that I'm going to spend any time talking about circumcision, but we're going to. It's in this text enough that I, that I have to. So you must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign, under the, a sign of the covenant between me and you. From generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants who you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. Any male who fails to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. So let's talk about circumcision a little while. That's why you came to church. That's why you invite friends to church, so we can talk about circumcision. So in, in this time, what we call, often call the ancient Near East, circumcision in different cultures was a common practice. So this is not something brand new that Abraham is like, ah, oh, the circumcision thing, what's going up? They knew about it. It was common. And it was usually used in other cultures as a rite of puberty or fertility or marriage. What happened in marriage for the idea that somebody is coming under another person's protection. But listen to what Romans chapter 4 verse 11 
By the way, Romans 4, we're going to come back here at the end. This is all, Romans 4 is all about Abraham's faith. But verse 11 says this. So we understand what circumcision is. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham had already had faith and that God already accepted and declared him to be righteous, made right with God. It did not save him. It was a sign of his, of his faith. It was symbolic and it pointed towards the covenant. It's so important to understand that even in the Old Testament, it digs deeper. It wasn't just the act of circumcision, which in the New Testament is one of the big debates in the early church, right? Jewish followers are saying, you've got to be circumcised if you really are going to be a good Christian. Gentiles are saying, we're not that into it. Right? And it becomes a big debate causing a lot of problems in the early church. And we have some very specific teachings that it doesn't make you right with God. Circumcision doesn't. There's no work that makes you right with God. It's faith. Amen? That's the point of what we're trying to get across here. It's intriguing. The, the, the imagery of circumcision is connected to New Testament baptism. What's cool about it is, in the Old Testament, circumcision is only for men. Now, Galatians 3.28, because of Jesus Christ, baptism is for man and woman, Gentile, slave, freed. It's a beautiful thing. That now God's story is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. Even the sign is pointing towards that. Verse 15. Enough circ circumcision talk. Then God said to Abraham, regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah. And both those, for, for some reason, sort of mean princess. And I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will richly bless her and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. Remember, they're, they're older. Then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. Underline those words. He laughed to himself in disbelief. We're going to talk about that at the end. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought. And how can Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? I mean, he's married a younger woman, but not that much younger. So Abraham said to God, may Ishmael live under your special blessing. Can the, the place where we took it into our, whole, our own hands, can that child be the child who sort of starts this whole blessing to be, blessed to be a blessing thing? But God replied, no. Your wife will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also just as you asked. I will make him extremely uh, fruitful and multiply his descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac, who will be born to you and Sarah about this time next year. When God had finished speaking, he left Abraham. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and every male in the household, including those born there and those he had bought. Then he circumcised them, cutting off their foreskins, just as God had told him. I mean, sounds like a great day in the Abraham household, right? <laughs> hey, guys, you, you got the day off, but we're going to do something else. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And Ishmael, his son, was 13. Both Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on that day, along with the other men and boys of the household. Whether they were born there or bought his servants, all were circumcised with him. Now chapter 18. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the, grove, the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. 
My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of the tree while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. There, we can't, we don't have time to talk about this, but there is something we could learn from hospitality in the biblical text. What it looked like to welcome strangers into your home and to provide true hospitality for them. All right, they said, do as you've said. So Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, hurry, get three large measures of the best flour, knead it into dough and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd, chose a tender calf. And to choose, and this is stepping above normal hospitality now. He gave it to his servant who quickly prepared it. When the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and roasted the meat. And he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade trees. Where is Sarah, your wife, they asked. Here, here it gets good. She's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening to the conversation from the tent. You can imagine her just sort of peering out, trying to listen. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children, so she laughed silently to herself. And said, how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? And here it is. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the question we're going to take in a second. I'll return about this time next year. Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I did not, not laugh. Reminds us of Genesis 3, right? Denial becomes the game. When unbelief is at our heart. I didn't laugh, but the Lord said, no, you did laugh. So here's the question. Is anything too hard for God? And this could be a two-hour theological discussion, but I want to apply it to the heart of this story. Is anything too hard for, the, for, for God? And I think it, it leads us into sort of two thoughts. One is God's will, and one is our faith. So think about the idea of God's will. If we start with just, is anything too hard for God, and we apply it to everything that's going on in our life, we're going to struggle. We're, we're going to come up with some very unhealthy answers. We're going to go to some places that don't help us at all. But if you think of Abraham and Sarah, and God's will begins to make sense. Because they knew God's will. They, they had been promised this, this covenant. They knew what the covenant was, and they had sort of started to see some of the realities that were supposed to play out. But God's will, in the middle of God's will, when you're 90 years old and God says you're going to have a child, God's will seems a little crazy, right? When you can't see God's will, I often will have people come into my office and ask the question, what is God's will for my life? My normal response is to laugh. I don't know God's will for your life, right? What is God's will? It's this big, dramatic question. But when we ask what is God's will, we usually have an agenda behind it. I want God to tell me what to do tomorrow. I want God to tell me what to do in three months. I want God to tell me what to do. And we miss the point of God's will as we learn it from a text like this. We miss the point of God's will as we prayed in the Lord's Prayer. At the heart of God's will is everything being made right again. In its simplicity. The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's when things are made right again. If you want to know God's will, read the end of the Bible. Read throughout scripture and see when God's people get it, how are they acting. That's God's will. It's a challenge for us to see it. 
because we want it to be about us. But at the end of the day, I think we almost miss the point. I love the gospel transformation Bible says. It says this. God's purposes of grace are not held captive by human sin or adverse circumstances. He is the God who works out his purposes through weak and ordinary human beings such as Abraham and Sarah and such as you and I. It is God's grace, not human merit, that determines the course and the blessing of our lives. What you see in Genesis 17 and 18 is God at work, period. Working out his will. I think at the end of the day, when we talk about God's will, we miss the very point by asking that question. The heart of it is, what does our faith look like? I think that's the key question because if my faith is what it should be, then God's will begins to make sense. It's not just about my happiness. It's not just about my pleasure. And that's what we see in this story. The same struggle of Genesis 3 that was belief and unbelief. Unbelief was Adam and Eve looking at God and saying, we can rule the garden better than you can. And we know the outcome of that for them, and we know the outcome of that for us. It's the same struggle for Abraham and Sarah. Can we really believe that God is going to do what God says? Can we really believe that God is actually who God says he is? It's our journey. Back in Romans chapter 4, it says this in verse 16, I Wish we had time to read the whole chapter. We just don't because it, the, the first part of the chapter just makes this very simple point. Abraham was made right with God simply through faith. It wasn't anything he did. It wasn't circumcision. It wasn't, he wasn't even obeying. It was faith. And come down to verse, verse 16. It says this. So the promise is received by faith. If you're here today and you're wondering what the core message of this whole Christian thing is, there's a loving God who came and died for your sins and rose again and wants to have a relationship with you. And all you have to do is turn towards him. Turn from your sin, trust in him, resubmit to the loving ruler, Jesus Christ. Keep reading. So the promise received by faith, it's given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it whether or not we are living according to the law of Moses. If we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The father of all of us. That is what scripture means when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happens because Abraham believed in God who brings the dead back to life and created new things out of nothing. And then listen to 18. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. Here's the deal. When my life is going great, when my marriage is going great, when my kids are obeying me all of the time, when church is growing, when all the things that I've defined as going great are going great, believing in God is easy, right? My marriage is falling apart when we got a really bad diagnosis for something, when one of my kids is rebelling against God, when it seems like there's no hope. That's when belief is hard. For Abraham and Sarah, it was hard to imagine they could have a kid, right? It makes sense. The invitation 
again and again and again that we see in this text that we see throughout Scripture comes back to belief or unbelief. Can you believe that God is actually God? Can you believe the promises of God, even though it seems like there's not a chance they could be fulfilled at this moment with everything you're going through? Can you still put your faith in God? You're in this room and you have been doubting your faith for a long time. Maybe the invitation is actually just one little bit iota of belief. That maybe this deal is true. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says this. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed God. It's one of the best lines in scripture. Abraham didn't obey because he was strong. You don't do good because you're good. Abraham obeyed because of faith. When God called him to leave home and go to another land, that God would give him as an inheritance, he went without knowing where he was going. And I read that last line and one question pops up into my mind. Why? Why believe? Why believe in the midst of things that seem to be hopeless? I think it goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 17 where God says to Moses, I am El Shaddai. I'm the God who keeps his promises. When it doesn't feel like it, when it doesn't seem like it, when every logical proof would say it won't happen, I am El Shaddai. Let's pray. God, I think for some in this room, we come in this morning And I think we need to be told it's okay just to have an ounce of belief and to trust that somehow you will reveal the rest of it to us along the way. Whether that's doubt, whether it's pain, what anger, whatever it is, God, give that that smallest bit of belief. And then, God, I, I pray for each one of us day in, day out that we would choose belief. That you, El Shaddai, the one who keeps promises, that we would be able to believe and trust in that, that the promise that was given to Abraham was actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that we can put full hope and trust and confidence in a living God who came and died and rose again. Help our unbelief. In your name, amen.